everyone. Welcome to episode 202 of Greater Than Code. I am Artemis Starr, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Rain Hendricks. Thanks, Artie. And I'm here with our guest, Asra Nadim. Asra is the co-founder of Opus AI, a streaming platform powered by proprietary tech that turns plain text into movies and games in real time. She is also the first female Pakistani venture capitalist and manages an early-stage startup for Tim Draper. She began her entrepreneurial journey working on product and market development for venture-backed startups in the Middle East, North Africa, and Southeast Asia. Asra is a huge fan of freedom and fried chicken. Cool. Hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. We are also excited. So, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower is my unrelenting love for myself. And I think I acquired it very early on in life because I grew up in Pakistan, which is as patriarchal as they come. And one of the things that you're always told is, oh, so I have this like, I love fried chicken. So I'll give you like a chicken theory about it. So I always used to say in our culture, the best pieces of chicken or what the women consider the best pieces of chicken are kept aside for the men of the house. And women are served like leftovers at the table for the most part. So in our house, we didn't have anything like that. So my mother would always be like, well, go ahead, get what you want from the table. And it really annoyed everybody else in our like circle of friends and family because they were like, they were spoiling this girl. And very early on, I learned that I'm going to be the best thing that ever happened to me because that's the only way that my life is going to mean something. And I think just that realization in itself is a pretty big superpower that's helped me throughout unrelenting love for myself i would like to also acquire that superpower it's actually not that hard because if you think about it everybody else is going to be at some not everybody else but there's a lot of people or events or things that happen in life that are going to be difficult or that are going to put you down or that are going to question the core of who you are as a person and you should be the last person doing that to yourself yeah yeah, I think that's right. So can we talk a little bit about storytelling? Because that seems like a passion of yours in general. Yes. Yes? Am I? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. How did you acquire this passion for storytelling? And why is storytelling so meaningful to you? So, again, I think my passion or love for storytelling is very cultural based of where I come from because a lot of traditions a lot of stories a lot of history is passed on as stories by your elders in the family or there are love stories or lores that are told by these particular people and you have to go to them to hear them out so just the romanticism of it is what attracted me as a teenager to storytelling because just this idea of sitting under a tree and on a starry night holding hands listening to this romantic you know lore that was written a thousand years ago is something that completely blew my mind and then over the course of time it really helped me also 
better trace where stories come from and also see this intersection between stories that are told in different cultures because a lot of cultures they're not writing first because women are usually not educated in most southeast asian cultures most african cultures and the stories like people learned how to write very late so a lot of stories are just carried on family to family so that's where a huge part of my love for storytelling came from and also you and i can be telling the same story but just the way we say things just just change of language the words that we add our pronunciation or enunciation all of that changes what you're doing with it and that itself is an art form i've been thinking a lot recently about how important storytelling is for change mm-hmm. because Sidney Decker in his book uh, the safety anarchist talks about how numbers can give you data information but they don't compel you to take action like stories do right no you're 100% correct so i'll give you an example of my great grandmother i was very fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with my great grandmother and she was a part of so india and pakistan used to be the same country under the british rule or even before that for a very long time and in 1947 they both got their independence from the british and became two different countries unfortunately both of these countries were separated or on the name of religion so a lot of muslims who lived in india migrated towards pakistan and similar and vice versa a lot of hindus and sikhs went back to india and my grandmother's family was a huge uh, they were not only involved in the independent great grandmother's family they were not only involved in the independence movement but for her one thing she always told in stories is how and it's kind of stuck with me is how she was cooking and she left her food on the stove and ran with the rest of her family and to her food never tasted the same and a lot of her sense of freedom was tied to these stories that she would tell about growing up with so much love and So I completely agree. I think stories are a huge part of change that is brought upon a society, a nation, or even a family. The other thing that I really like that he says is that when when organizations tell stories, what what this demonstrates is that they are about people. Yeah, because the quickest numbers are good numbers <laughs> data all of that is good and you need it to make a lot of sense out of stories or to grow or scale but to really buy into something you need that connection that is formed through words or that is formed through mutually assured passion for a future that you want So in the context of software and say you've got a team what would be an example of a way that you might use a story to create this connection that you talked about for uh, the shared passion for the future Sure a lot of people are passionate about a future that they want to see in the world but there's a very small percentage of people who actually go out and build it and a lot of those people connect over this it's like how you find your soulmate in like life it's very similar to that so to give you an example of it 
in terms of like building a company, right? When you start, you don't have a lot of resources. You can't pay people astronomical salaries. A lot of times you're working from a garage or like a small room and the resources and a lot of odds are stacked against you when you start a company. But you believe in the mission or vision of what you're building and the problem that it is going to solve. And once that problem is solved, the efficiency that it's going to bring to the process or the value chain that it's going to create or the new market opportunities that it's going to open or the way it's going to change how something is done. And there can be multiple motivators there, right? So money can be a motivator. You want to make a lot of money. Nothing wrong with that. You want to change the way something is done and make it more efficient for yourself and other people like yourself. That's a great motivator. You absolutely abhor the way things are done in an industry and you want to change it. You want to create more jobs in a market or some new technology comes in the market that wasn't possible before. And now there are a hundred thousand new opportunities that can be created. But the only way to see all of this is if you have that shared vision of the future. If you have that shared passion for something, mutually shared passion for something. And finding those people is hard, which is why a lot of times we're always building communities. We're always seeking people people who think like us and not only think like us also are going to be that two percent or three percent who are going to go out and build it where have you found these builder people that were on fire with that passion to build these dreams sometimes i've just accidentally landed into them because Actually, let me rephrase that. I don't think it was an accident. I've always been on this like discovery journey of like opening doors and finding these people or actually building myself. So a lot of times when you are building something in order to attract other builders, you have to be the one who's building something as well. Otherwise, what value are you bringing to the table, right? So I've met a lot of these people through my work with startups, through my work, my own work with building companies. I'm married to one of them. So just randomly met them all over the place. So what what's this vision that you're passionate about building right now? So for me, one of the things that I truly believe in is that there is no freedom of any kind without financial freedom. And technology is a great enabler to get masses towards financial freedom and to really get people new opportunities. And for me, technology has always been about creating efficiencies because one thing that really differentiates us as humans from everybody else is our ability to be creators and our ability to imagine. And nobody was born, like nobody goes to college or like anything ever or gets excited by the idea that I'm going to get up today and I'm going to go to work and I'm going to check boxes for the rest of my day, or I'm going to drag and drop things for the rest of my day, or I'm going to, you know, whatever other boring jobs there are. So a lot of it is just creating efficiencies that automate those jobs. And yes, it takes away those jobs, but what it does is it creates a new economy for people to really hone in on their creativity, on their passions, on things that they love doing, and use technology to 
advanced at it. So, and kind of my life trajectory has always been working on products that do that. So be that building online infrastructure for governments, be that building job websites, be that building um, any other, like a fund or anything else. It's always been about how can we leverage technology to really hone in on human creativity and give people multiple options for that financial freedom. The post-industrial revolution was really about the automation of work where the original industrial revolution was about the mechanization of work. So we want machines to do the sort of physical, mechanical tasks that humans are doing now. The automation of work is about we want machines to do the computer-like mental tasks that humans do now, like clicking a a box or something. Redundant tasks. Right. The idea for me is that we know in you know the past few decades that human brains aren't actually like computers, but we've built up a lot of work where we try to make humans act like computers. Mm-hmm. Because ever since the invention of computers, basically we've, or even before, we've had this idea that brains are like computers, but they're not. So right now, creativity is not really a thing that we understand how to make a computer do except by accident. When computers are creative, it's because a human made them creative, Mm -hmm. right? But the automation of work can't replace human creativity. It can only replace what is computer-like about, um, like, information work. What is boring and repetitive and something you can make a computer do easily. Right. I agree with that 100%. I think a lot of this also frees up, actually creates new tools that can then really harness human creativity or create markets for so for example a lot of people have they're passionate about let's say music or they're passionate about dancing or something or they're passionate about story writing but there is no like right now in the US only points six percent of stories or scripts written get made into movies a whole bunch of them are never made into movies because there's no, there's the commercial viability of making a movie is not there for them, right? So once you automate the tools that are used to make films, once you automate the tools that are used for a lot of things that are expensive and you, and that's where technology or computers come in, right? They make these things cheaper and easily accessible that's what mobiles have done in a lot of emerging markets that's where you really harness and then create new markets that we haven't thought about yet yeah the the thing that i i find so frustrating about this is that it's possible for everyone to have all of the necessities of life completely satisfied under the economic system we currently have Mm-hmm. People don't need to be hungry. People don't need to work menial jobs. People can at least be paid a reasonable wage for working those jobs, right? And the thing that's frustrating to me is that while this does sort of uplift human potential for some people, it also doesn't for other people. The people who are are losing jobs to automation are generally trying to get similar jobs. Mm-hmm. They don't need jobs. The economy requires that they have jobs, but that's that's a human invention, right? They could be spending all of their time making the next movie, writing the next novel. They're not, you know, they're spending half of their lives working these menial jobs. And it's really frustrating to me that the original promise of mechanization could have been that everyone in America, for example, doesn't need to work to subsist. 
and the, the promise of automation or uh, yeah could have been similar but you know we still have a very large you know group of people in America who are making minimum wage and their prospects in the new economy aren't great so and that's how do what, you define that's what me. how do you define work that's a good question it depends on who you ask i guess the answer i would give is that I would talk about labor, which is selling the capabilities that I have to someone who buys those capabilities to do something with them. So I sell my time to the company I work for, and they use that time and my skills to make money. Right. So for me, the promise of America has never been that you don't have to work, right? Coming from outside of here, I'm very new here. And coming from a country where who you become is or who you marry or what happens to your life is very often decided very early on. So a carpenter's son is going to be a carpenter. A farmer's son is going to be a farmer. So the promise of America, the promise of the free world is that you can be whoever you want to be. And yes, you were born a farmer, but you can be the next billionaire tech CEO if you want. And for me, I don't think the purpose of anyone's life or any human's desire is to not work because you're essentially selling two things, right? You're selling your time and you're selling your mind. And it has to compound. Otherwise, we're going to be very unhappy. So I think the repetition doesn't help anybody. But at the same time, technology can really enable us to get to that next frontier where somebody who wants to write or somebody who wants to create a film can do that. And you you can see that today, right? Uh, and again, I completely agree with you. These options might seem harder for people whose jobs are getting automated. But if you look at the young, like the up and coming, like younger millennials or Gen Z, they're using technology to really leverage and live to their fullest potential. Upskilling or figuring out how do we create economies for people whose jobs are getting automated, that still remains a challenge. So that I 100% agree with. But to me, it was never about the fact that you don't have to work. To me, it's always about can you work on what you want to work and still live a good life? Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like in technology, though, you know, as we continue to advance technology, we have a responsibility, though, too. I mean, as you know, the world advances in this general direction and we create more automation and we create more, you know, there's more side effects of the things that we create on, on society and how our technology shapes society that we as technologists have a responsibility for those cumulative effects and to, and to think about those effects. And so on one hand, we've got this dynamic of, you know, you mentioned this, you know, promise of a free world. And part of that too, I think, comes with responsibility that this world that we design with our technology and the effects that it creates, at what point do we take responsibility for the shape of the, the world that emerges from our, our creation and the suffering that's created as a side effect too? It's a philosophical question, right? So if somebody decides to blow up a country and use an atom bomb for it, 
do you blame the person who decided to do the action or do you blame the person who invented the bomb, right? Or do you figure out what else can you do with this nuclear technology that you have and harness it to produce electricity? So I completely hear what you're saying, but I also think that a lot of these questions are not as easy as, oh, you invented this thing, so you should take responsibility for it, right? Because I don't, I can assure you that the people who were working on the internet did not think that Kardashians or you know, are going to be the most viewed <laughs> medium on the internet, or you'll have access to any information in the world that you want for free in your pocket, and you're still not going to utilize it. So a lot of times, I think, yes, technologists need to be responsible for things that they're building, but we as consumers also need to be more conscious of what we're doing with that technology or what we're and again I think it goes back to taking responsibility as individuals for what happens to our life right so when I came to America for the first time somebody was like oh we're going to this Tony Robbins thing and I was like oh who's Tony Robbins right and they're like oh he's this like guy who helps you with your passions and he motivates you and I was like huh you need somebody to motivate you because to me and to a lot of people outside of the U.S., people who look up to the U.S., people who are growing up in poor countries like Pakistan or like Senegal or anywhere else in the world, to them, the only person who is going to be responsible for what happens to their life, the only person who takes responsibility, the only person who can motivate them or take any blame for them is themselves. This concept of somebody else motivating you, it's born out of abundance of everything. So at least that's how I think about it. So yes, technologists are, they should be more considerate of or, or take responsibility for their building. But as consumers, we also need to be more considerate or more responsible for our actions. I think this gets into the difficulty of it. As individuals, it's easy to not be at fault for, you know, any of the things that are these kind of emergent effects. Then when we end up in a situation where the system as a whole and its emergent effects, you know, are, are heading off the cliff, do we just keep on walking like lemmings off the cliff because none of us are responsible? And I, I mean, I think that's kind of where where we're getting with the evolution of technology and nobody being responsible and you know we have to blame the system but not the people and at the same time come up with strategies for actually making things better and and I'm not sure necessarily how to make that transition but at the same time somehow I think it's necessary right somehow yeah. I think we need to step up and set up whatever it is we need to set up to create a precedent for how we go about doing things and, and change the way the system works so that, that the whole thing doesn't fall off the cliff. Because, I mean, I, I, I mean, like I said, I think that's very much where we're at right now. Not to take away from the seriousness of what we're talking about, but can I tell a quick like story that my great-grandmother told me? Of course, I would love to hear it. So one of the stories from my childhood goes, and this is when she was instilling this, like, if you want to 
see any change in the world, you have to start with yourself kind of a thing. And she said there was a, so there's a village where it's a new village. So some people, they don't like the village that they live in. So they say, you know what, we're going to move out and build our own village. And they go, but the first thing that they discover is that there is no well and there's no water for them. So now they have to dig and get water. Once they start digging, they see the earth is really like, you know, it's really hard and it doesn't really work for them. So the guy who's in charge says, you know what? Everybody at night, bring a bucket of water and throw water in this hole. And tomorrow it's going to be easy. So everybody goes back. And at night, one person thinks, you know what? Everybody else is going to bring water. I'll bring stones because... Well, you know what? Nobody's going to notice. I'll bring some mud and stones and I'll just put them there. So at least I can go to bed early. So the next morning they wake up and the hole that they dug is completely filled because everybody else thought that somebody else is going to bring water. And they all just brought back the same dirt and filled the hole. So I feel like a lot of times that's what we do as society. Again, I'm very new to the US, so I don't know how things happen here, but In Pakistan, it's very common for people to just throw their garbage out on the road, right? And you always start by not throwing your garbage on the road. You always start by taking that personal responsibility. I think for us to correct things, some of us will have to say, you know what? And there are people who lead the way. So who's going to lead the way? And then people who are following, will we take ownership of this? It's certainly not easy. And I think you're right. It does start with personal responsibility. You know, just listening to you talk, thinking about the things going on in the world. And and we've got all kinds of technology now where we've got just dynamics of dysfunctional, just dysfunctional system dynamics. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way, a little nicer way. But it's concerning and not easy to change direction, right? It is. It's hard. And the longer you go on in life, it's like a snowball, right? Once it starts getting bigger and bigger, it's harder to push it back up. Yeah, definitely. This podcast is brought to you by An Event Apart. For over 15 years, An Event Apart conferences have been the best way to level up your skills, be inspired by world-class experts, and learn what's next in web design. An Event Apart is proud to introduce Online Together Fall Summit, a three-day web design conference coming to a device near you October 26th through 28th. The Fall Summit features 18 in-depth sessions, each followed by a live moderated Q&A session with the speaker, plus unique one-on-one conversations with some special guests. You'll learn about advanced CSS from Marianne Suzanne and Una Kravitz, design systems and patterns from Mina Markham and Jason Grigsby, design engineering from Adekunle Oduye, inclusive design from Sarah Soudin and David Dylan Thomas, and much more. Attending an event apart boosts your brain, inspires your creativity, and increases your value to your teammates, employers, clients, and most of all, yourself. And you can boost it even further. Purchase a three-day pass and receive six months of on-demand access to their first three Online Together events. That's a full six days of jam-packed content for the price of three. Greater Than Code listeners can get $100 off any multi-day pass with promo code AEAGTC. Once again, that promo code is AEAGTC. So grab your spot and join an event apart online together fall summit, October 26th through 28th. See the full three-day schedule and register today at aneventapart.com. I think we need to find a balance between this, this idea of personal responsibility and a recognition of these sort of 
systemic issues, power dynamics, and things like that. So, for example, if you look at smoking in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Uh, the stop smoking campaigns were pretty much entirely based around personal responsibility calls to personal responsibility. You know, you should stop smoking because it's bad for your health and so on. But if you look at why smoking became a thing, it's because the tobacco companies invented the field of marketing to lie to consumers. So they wanted women to start smoking. And so what they decided was that they were going to convince women that smoking would m make them thinner. But they realized that in order to make that work, they would have to convince women that they wanted to be thinner. Mm -hmm. So they did that first. And this sort of spawned the entire industry of, you know, unhealthy relationships with you know, the women have to their bodies. And then once they did that, they were able to, to tell these, you know, these housewives that if you smoke, you'll be thinner and then you'll look better. Right. So the the power that these these companies had to design these marketing campaigns that effectively lied to people, the constructed realities that people bought into because of their ability to basically hijack the way brains work, right? So there has to be some balance, I think, between personal responsibility and understanding that that has limits. That the people who have power have more responsibility that that, that goes with it. I 100% agree that people who have more power have more responsibility. Also, I think a lot of times, and this is a conversation that I have, that's like an ongoing conversation in our house because we have a ton of, my siblings are all very young and we're always trying to understand what's the difference or like what happens in your life that you buy into somebody else's narrative of who you are as a person. And we can agree to call it marketing, but at the end of the day, that's what it is. You're buying into somebody else's narrative. And that is great storytelling on their part. But what happened to you as an individual to buy into that, right? Because what are they exploiting by the end of the day? I don't think it's a vulnerability. Like, I buy into a lot of stuff all the time. And I'm way more informed than my 18-year-old sister, right? At one point, I thought that the answer to this is that the sooner you find your purpose in life, and we talk about like this a lot, it's like self-actualization, purpose, what drives you, what motivates you, the harder it is for you to buy into other people's narrative. But then I also realized that that in itself is not enough because the only way to beat a narrative is to have a narrative that's stronger than that. And unfortunately, those kind of stronger narratives, it's hard to build internal traction and external traction for them. And that is where your tools of technology comes in, right? So we see bots is like a huge problem on Twitter, for example. And any narrative that somebody wants amplified can be amplified if they have a bot farm. And I think that's where the responsibility relies squarely with the Twitter product team, right? Or people in power there to shape a narrative. And then we should question what is the narrative that they want to sell? Because when you're not paying for something, you are a 
the sucker. So if you're using something for free, you are the product, right? And when you're commoditized as a human, you're commoditized as a product. Anybody can sell you or sell data to you. That should be questioned. And there is a small shift towards more vertical paid communities, which are amazing. I'm a part of a whole bunch of them. But at the same time, I think about myself, right? I grew up on the internet. Living in Pakistan, I had no access to anything. I only had Britannica, Encyclopedia. And my access to the world, all the opportunities that I got in life came to me because I logged on online and met people, met amazing people, reached out to them, asked for help, and they helped me. But if we start building these silos and these communities that are closed doors, it becomes so much harder for people who are following us or people who don't have that level of access, which is a very common problem that happens in venture capital today, is people who don't have access get left out or it's hard for them to gain the same level of money or you know hire the same level of people, et cetera. So it's a hard problem to solve, but there is responsibility that needs to be placed upon those in power and individuals equally. I don't want to to push back on you too hard because I also struggle with understanding how to balance, you know, individual responsibility are, you know, each person's obligations in a society with power dynamics, with, you know, the, the ability for, for people to be influenced in ways that they have relatively little control over, you know, marketing works in part because it's able to tap into the way brains work. You know, I don't want to go all less wrong here because that's super gross, but there's a thought experiment, which is you lock a supercomputer in what's effectively like cyber jail, and then it has a conversation with a human. And then the question is, can that computer convince the human to let the computer out? Mm-hmm. Can it somehow, through just talking to the human, right, convince it to do something bad? by appealing to its reason or to its, you know, to your reason or to your emotions or, or whatever it needs to do. And I think that thought experiment is, is interesting. Every, all the other stuff around it is weird and gross, but mm-hmm. the idea that humans are like hackable machines, I think is wrong, but not completely wrong. Yeah. To me, it's not wrong because if I think about it in my own life, I think I have hacked my brain the most myself, and that has enabled me to get places, right? To get out of where I wanted to get out of, to build a better life for myself, right? To achieve whatever short-term, long-term goals I had. And that's also the beauty of the human mind. It can be hacked, but at the same time, let's assume that whatever hack happened And we say, oh, that was a mistake that you made, or that was an error. In computers, sometimes errors can crash a system. Humans have the propensity to move on and do better. And without the wrong decisions that we make, our right decisions wouldn't matter as much, right? Mm -hmm. Because what you learn from those hackings or that error of judgment, or like I remember as a kid, everybody would say to me, oh, you're really good at talking. You can talk your way out of trouble. And I know I can, right? And as a kid, if you're told that you can talk your way out of trouble, you can talk your way out of anything, it's a very slippery slope. 
because then that's who you become. And then your life choices are everybody would be like, oh, you should become a lawyer. And I'm like, huh? Because you have this American, like in you know, a Hollywood version of lawyers talking themselves out of everything. But I also think that that ability to talk myself out of things also land, it landed me in, a, in trouble a whole bunch of times. I am most likely manipulated or bullied people. But at the same time, it also helped me open doors and not be scared about reaching out. Or I see people, even my own family, right? Who don't have that kind of attitude or I think humans can, we can manipulate whoever we want, however we want. We have that power of storytelling. We have that power of, you know, hacking as you call it, but harnessing people enough helps the good really excel. One of the things I think is really interesting about that thought experiment is that if it had taken place in the, the 16th century, say, it could still have happened almost exactly the same. It just would have been about Satan for the for the Christian. Oh, 100%. I, I just think that's interesting that we need some like superhuman power or capability. And in the 21st century, it's AI, right? But in the 16th century, it's it's demons. It's the devil. It's God. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I remember so... There's a thought experiment called Laplace's Demon, which is about reversing mm -hmm. entropy. And in the 21st century, that would be Laplace's computer, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, it would be a computer that makes a decision about what to do with each with each atom. Right. But obviously, in Laplace's time, there weren't computers, so he needed something that had the powers he sought, right? So he came up with, with a demon. Mm -hmm. I think it mostly has to do with changing human conceptions about what is possible, Mm -hmm. um, about what you need is a stand-in in that situation to represent the power, the capability, you know, the knowledge that the entity, you know, you need some entity that has those characteristics, right? And in the 21st century, we now think that that could be AI, not to AI today, but maybe some potential future AI. Right. How much do you think is about, of this, do you think is about just control or power? Hmm. Probably most of it. Yeah. Because in my head, it's people who are scared or people who have something to fear are the easiest to manipulate and control. And again, I'm saying this because I come from a very religious family in a very religious country. And religion is literally used as a gun on your head to make you do things. And people do them, right? And this fear of the greater power, be that religion or be that demon or be that AI or be that this apocalyptic view of like, oh, this is going to go wrong if you don't do this. It always works in the favor of those in power because that's the way you control humans by the end of the day. And I think that's also buying into somebody else's story or somebody else's narrative, right, of what you should be scared of. And at least today, I don't think that there is a collective group or a collective conscience or anything that can solve that for you. So getting rid of those shackles of fear is a very individual process. And yes, you can enable each other and kind of like have a chain reaction where you pull each other out. But it's like very, very personal. There is no collective solution to this unknown power of like, you know, that you have to fear this. 
I would say that it is slightly more general. I think it's people who have really strong goals, desires, needs, strivings can be easily manipulated. So very greedy people can also be easily manipulated, right? You just convince them that they will get what they want if they do what you want, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, people who are in fear have, have a striving, which is to be safe, right? I, I, I guess I'm going in an almost Buddhist, like, Mm-hmm. We need to rid ourselves of strivings and, and desires sort of way with this. Mm-hmm. Our desires and our strivings are what makes us who we are, right? So right. Uh, yes. you can't get rid of that. But I also, again, one thing I, I learned at least in my 20s, and I wish I'd learned earlier, is you have to pick and choose your fights. And this fight of collective fear I thought I'd left it behind and I didn't think that I would, (laughs) I came to the free world. I didn't think I'd have to deal with it again. But unfortunately, what I've seen happening here in the last four years, it's very reminiscent of what happens in other parts of the world, right? So all the politicians are essentially holding an entire country hostage on both sides for their whatever, like, you know, this fear of things going on and like, you know, and I'm like, oh no, this is, did, did I just wake up in a nightmare where this just reset? I worked like 20 years to get out of there. Yeah, I just think that there's always going to be about 2% of the people in the world who are going to build things. And we stand on the shoulders of giants who built technologies or who build even technologies, revolutions, everything that 2%, and I strive to be amongst that 2% as much as possible. And in my head, at least, it all all works out at some point. We'll have somebody else fight this fight for me. So I'm delegating that one over to you. I think it could potentially be more than 2% if more people could realize their potential. Yes. Definitely. How do more people realize their potential, though? Maybe we make automation not replace jobs, but free people from the need to have those jobs. You can call them jobs if you want, where they can be creative, where they can find ways to express their potential. Oh, 100%. I think that's one of the things that we're doing with Opuses, right? So what we're building right now is so people who like telling stories can tell stories, monetize those stories, and doesn't matter who you are or where you are in the world or what language, well, right now you have to speak English, but as long as you can tell a story, we can build it into a series or a movie and you can monetize that talent. So I think a lot of um, technology will get there and there's no reason in my head why we shouldn't be able to get there. So, so tell us more. How did this start? Can you tell a story about the sort of early like stage of, of this project? Sure. So I think we very early on established that I love stories. And I have a film TV theater background. I was, I was studying economics to be a politician and change the world, or at least the world that I grew up in, and very quickly left that notion behind. And I, got in, I was in film TV theater, and then I got introduced to somebody building a tech company. And I realized that everything that I wanted to do in life, I couldn't do it if I stuck with my passion 
of writing or storytelling. So I moved into technology. But it was always something at the back of my head that I wanted to do. And I love playing games. And I love watching movies. And I love people who tell stories. And for me, it's always extremely hard to find exciting stories. And it's become excruciatingly harder in the last couple of years because all our major studios are now just producing reruns or remakes of whatever was produced 20 years ago. So my co-founder and I, we started working on a game about six years ago. And when we were working on the game, the idea was that the game would generate environments and have smart tasks and goals and everything as you go. And you can integrate multiple stories that you hear around you into the gameplay. Extremely difficult to do because the technology to generate anything on the go was not there six years ago. So we kind of shelved that idea, kept looking into it, and then went our different routes, did our thing, and then got back on it about a year ago. And the idea is very simple. As you're writing something, um, there is an AI at the back. And when I say AI, it's essentially just like we're processing a lot of natural language and we're then using neural networks and procedural design to place objects and animate them. So what happens is as you're writing something, it extracts what you're writing and creates a 3D world around it. And for now, we're making short movies out of it. But the idea is that you can convert any book that you like, anything that you're reading into a movie in real time or a game in real time. That's really cool. I, I would imagine that even like productions that have the resources to do something bigger than that could still find it useful for like really fast storyboarding or something like that. Yes. So that's initially what we tested it with was storyboarding. And that's when we were testing the, like, you know, when we were validating the technology, when we were validating the scope of it. But what we're building is essentially a media house where we want to be the publisher ourselves. Mm. It also sort of democratizes access to the technology, right? So it went from, you know, this is something that production studios with with big budgets can use to this is something. Exactly. And there are engines that you can use today to do this but for those engines you have to be an expert in let's say x y and z right so you need to have x amount of training in unity and stories are told orally or stories that's like the way you tell stories is not the way you build or code projects right so we wanted to kind of take the same experience of telling a story so it doesn't tax a creator's mind and give them the ability to at least have a product that they can put out in the world. And even if 10,000, 20,000 people watch it, that's perfectly fine because for a lot of big budget studios or big studios, it has to be millions of people or it's not a viable project. It seems to me like you were sort of uniquely positioned or prepared to realize the potential of this because, and I, I don't want to generalize, but for portions of American culture, oral storytelling is is basically not a thing anymore. Right. There are definitely parts of, of American culture where it very much is, right. but but also where it's not. I, it's becoming less of a thing over time. Sorry. That was that was a whole thing. 
No, no, I agree. I agree. And I think it's also something that's happening not only in America, but it's happening in other parts of the world because we're becoming consumers and we're not creating as much. And a lot of it goes back to it's extremely hard to create content, right? So if you tell somebody that you have to write a story, like if you have to tell somebody, okay, you write it and we'll make a film out of it, that's going to take two years to produce and we'll have to go find sponsors for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The person's going to be like, you know what? I'm just going to go create a TikTok video. At least it's going to get me like, you know, 10,000 views in a week's time. So a lot of that has to do with access to tools. And I definitely do not want storytelling to die as an art form. Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developers' imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. I was thinking back to earlier in our conversation when we were talking about about individual responsibility and the ways that, that people's thoughts can be sort of shaped by the context they're in. And I think that the way I've been trying to comprehend the role of individual responsibility is to remember that human cognition is embedded in the context mm-hmm. and that human performance is ecological. And so if you want to understand how an individual is performing or thinking or behaving, you have to actually include their environment, their context for that to make sense. So I think that the way I understand individual responsibility is by being holistic enough to include pretty much everything that goes into how humans make decisions and, and things like that. Yeah. In theory, I agree with it. So let's say, given like the context of my life, right? Every single time that I made an exception for somebody else's reality or somebody else's context into my individual responsibility, it weighed down where I wanted to get in life. It weighed down the decisions that I made because all of a sudden, then I was responsible for my father, my father's honor, because his honor was directly tied to all of my actions. I was responsible for my family's status in society, because my words could definitely hurt that. I was responsible for the gated community that we lived in, because anybody who drove into that gated community was a representative of the community as a whole, onwards and onwards and onwards, right? And somehow I have always struggled with that notion, which is probably why I never made a very good, I mean, I was a very efficient and effective employee, but I was never a star employee. It made it difficult for people to work with me because for me, individual responsibility always is higher than the responsibility of a group. And I understand motivating people or empowering them to perform to their maximum potential. But I also inherently don't understand how somebody's inability to, like, I have to drag 
people with me to my finish line. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I don't know if I have an answer, but I may have a useful way to, to think about it. So I think there's this idea that individual responsibility is basically there's a collection of things that I have control over and then every, there's everything else, right? Mm-hmm. And so individual responsibility is the sum of things I control. There's that sort of sense, which is a sort of classical category, you know, black and white way to look at it. I don't mm-hmm. think that works. And I think understanding how it doesn't work is maybe useful. So I think individual responsibility is, like any human category, much more nuanced than that. So one way... That part I agree with. So that part I 100% agree with. I don't think it's like black and white or it's... Right. uh, Yeah, that part I agree with. So one way it could work is that it could be prototypal. So I've been reading a lot of Lakoff, uh, you could probably tell. And so the way that would work is that there are sort of these archetypal things that are in the category of, of individual responsibility. So when, when you think of indi- individual responsibility, there are probably a few examples that come to your mind first. Mm-hmm. And those are sort of central to the category. And then everything else is more or less near to those in some sort of configuration space. And right. the things that are further away, so for example, how much money I make, right, is in a gray zone, right? I personally don't have complete control over how much money I make, right? Right. Like when I wake up in the morning is something I have more control over, right? Right. And so I think if we understand better how the category of individual responsibility works cognitively, I think we'd get a better handle on what to do about it. Yeah, I agree 100%. I don't think that you can build companies or really bring any change in the world if there is like this very stringent box of, okay, this is what I'm responsible for in order for any mass change in an organization or in a society or in a country or however you want to think about it, that bubble has to encompass more people. And it's very similar to how I'm sure you are building teams, right? So you go from just being okay, this is the code that I'm responsible for. So this is the code we're responsible for. And then this is what we are selling as a company. And being at the center of it, you kind of keep adding more and more and more to it. So I definitely agree that at some point that has to, I just haven't, I think, figured out how does that morph into, or how do you go from that small cluster to a mm-hmm. like individual responsibility to a bigger cluster of social responsibility? Yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating, too. Um, I I think that one of the things I've learned from systems theory is that systems are different in character from the parts that make them up, right? right? So a car is not like an engine or a tire or a door. A car is a different thing, right? Mm -hmm. It has different characteristics. A car can take you from one place to another. An engine can't, Right. right? An engine can't even take itself from one place to another. And so I think that when you combine a bunch of individuals who have a shared purpose, a shared mission, a shared whatever you want to call it, you get something that's different from the sum of all of their individual goals and responsibilities. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. And I think a lot of times the struggle is just finding those individuals. 
And I don't know if it's always the case, but it somehow seems easier. Like a good number for that always ends at 50. And I've seen that happen in a lot of companies, right, as well, right? The minute you're you're crossing that 100 employee mark, that culture becomes harder and harder and harder to maintain or that shared vision of the world or that shared goal becomes harder and harder and harder to maintain. And maybe that's a... That's the evolution of what a good leader is. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I would also add, um, and this also comes from Russ Acoff, that one of the characteristics of a a big S system, a complex system, is that every part has a unique influence on every other part. Mm -hmm. So, for example, what my heart is doing depends on what my lungs are doing. Right. What my brain is doing depends on what my circulation, you know, circulatory Mm -hmm. system is doing and so on. I think that when the system is a bunch of people, each individual connection between people is immeasurably complex. Right. And so uh, the other lesson from Akoff is that a system is the product of its interaction and not the sum of its parts. And so systems built from humans are impossibly complex to understand. So the the only hope we have of understanding them is to come up with simplifications and uh, general rules and guidelines and heuristics and things like that. But it's it's good to not mistake those things for the actual system itself. Right. Again, as I have evolved in my life or grown up, as my mom would say, that sense of individual responsibility that I had has grown right? So it has grown in its purpose and it has grown in who and what it encompasses. And I think once it's like, again, like, you know, building blocks. So once you start building or like, you know, you start putting things on top of each other and these can be humans, these can be shared purposes in life and you work towards something, it's complex and you can't solve it. But at the same time, the end result can be very, very rewarding because then you're surrounded by people who challenge you, but by the end of the day, believe in that same vision for the world that you want to build. Yeah. And I, I think as as leaders, our responsibility is to create a context in which people can be responsible for stuff. Mm-hmm. To create a context in which people can show up to work feeling engaged, for example. Right. You know, it's really hard to take responsibility for something that you don't give a shit about. You know, if my work environment is so awful that I hate showing up there every day, which is not uncommon, then why Mm -hmm. would I want to take responsibility for that? I just want to get it done and go home. Right. That makes sense. Because that to me, like finding something to do where that's a personal responsibility. But then once you've found that, that becomes like a group that for me in my head the group is also like you know then that group becomes an individual entity right so yeah the way i think of it is sort of you know i can create a context in which i think you can be successful and mm-hmm. then it's up to you what you do with it 100 yeah i agree and then part of that can be telling me that i was wrong about mm-hmm. what you needed to be successful Yeah, no, I do that with my, um, I've always done that with my teams, or I've learned to do that with my teams. And I learned that from my uh, first manager. Well, I think I ended up doing my reflection by accident. 
I think it's been a very natural conversation and I like that because it's not forced into a corner of this is what we have to talk about. So that's good. That's what we, we strive to do. Yeah. So, uh, Artie, do you, do you want to reflect? I was thinking about, you know, this concept of power and what is, what is power in this context? What is influence? And you know, we started this conversation with unrelenting love for yourself as a superpower. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about that, you know, and what kind of power that is. And one of the things you've been able to do is take your dreams and really go after them and start building them and create your own power by being willing to go out there and create and make stuff happen and find other people that can take technology and and wield that power and do phenomenal things with it. And as technologists, I think that's one of the things we need to acknowledge is how much power we really have through our skills and our ability to create and build when we really when we really go after that, when we really believe in ourselves, when you know we're willing to give ourselves all the things that we need to go and you know be strong and powerful and make stuff happen in the world. And you know when it comes to creating change, making ways, setting new precedent for whatever vision, whatever shared passion we want to create in the world, it does start with ourselves. And it does start with that that power and claiming that power for ourselves. So thank you for that inspiration. Oh, thank you for taking that away from that. I wasn't really in my head that was more like, yeah, this is what I did. But I'm I'm glad it was inspirational. Okay, you're up. As we were talking, I've been reflecting on a lot of things, but I think for the majority of it, I've been a lot has happened in the last, I think, six years of my life. And I haven't really sat down and processed as much of my core beliefs about something as I wanted. But one of the things that I was thinking about is that my idea of what an individual is and what they're responsible for has morphed a lot more than I thought it had. And it's been a journey that I haven't reflected on or thought about or spoken about. But I think it also made me realize, A, how far I've come from being this, like, I'm going to fight if I have to fight for this, to you know what, I'm going to find people who believe in this thing that I do and build it together. And that itself is a, is a huge change from thinking that you're, as an individual, you're not alone. But with that, I think one of the things that I just started thinking about is that, yes, you're not alone, but then means that you're responsible for a lot of these other people that are now tied into your goal. Which bucket of responsibility do you want to put them under? And I don't have the answer for that. That's something I'm going to be definitely thinking about a lot more. As you were saying that, I was I was just thinking about how a system is the product of its interactions. Right. And I think what that means in this context is that a group of people is actually much more powerful than if you just add up all of the individuals. Mm-hmm. But I think a, a group is also somehow 
more responsible too. I think the obligations placed on a group can be greater than the obligations placed on any individual member, if that makes oh, sense. 100%. But then do you think that your obligations or, I'm sorry, I know we're trying to like wrap this up. <laughs> I, just got, I just thought of this. like, And I think at least as I'm saying this, I'm like leaning more towards a yes, but we agree that the greater the power, the greater the responsibility. So when as a group, as your power or what you can do with tools of technology or tools of mass destruction or any tools at your disposal, your responsibility increases as well, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a big mystery for me. You know, if if it's true that an individual doesn't have the, the power, the influence, or the responsibility that suffices for the whole group, you know, if I could do it by myself, I wouldn't need to bring a bunch of people together to do it, right? Then how, if if I can't take on that much power or, or responsibility, then how do I navigate my own individual role in the group? What my own individual responsibility is? I think that's still a mystery for me. But don't you think that a person who brings a group together, and as long as you hold the crown, let's call it the crown, as long as you're the one who's wielding this group together, you also hold some sort of a, I don't think it's as black and white as a kill switch, but what you create to a certain point, you can also not destroy, but wrangle Mm -hmm. into a direction Mm -hmm. that you want. And I think wrangling that in the direction that you want, regardless of how much noise that still remains your responsibility right so in the context of a company twitter is jack dorsey's responsibility i'm just like i'm not shitting on jack dorsey i'm just saying like you know, just using it as an example you can if you want though oh, i do <laughs> no okay i'm trying this week i'm trying not to shit on people <laughs> But um, by the end of the day, every decision that comes out of that organization is that person's responsibility. Because when you build something, you're tying your fate or the fate of that thing to yourself, right? So what becomes of it is your responsibility. But at the same time, if you pass the reins on to somebody else, does that absolve you of that responsibility? I don't think so. Yeah, so, so like the the former Reddit CEO talking about how bad Reddit was, how bad Reddit is now. Like you're the dude who made that a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's like, oh, this is toxic. I'm like, uh, hello. And I think that's also a huge part of this celebrity culture, or this like fake influence culture that we have. It's like you built it. You're a part of the problem. Now, just because you're wearing a white hat doesn't absolve you of the problem. Yeah. I, I think if we, if we accept the maxim that the responsibility should be proportional to power, then we have to look at what power is in the social world. And it, is it just influence over other people? Mm-hmm. But what kind of, like, I don't want influence over other people. Right. So that's also something I always question is like, I don't want to influence people. I just want to build what I want to build. And like, if somebody wants influence over me, my mind or my time, I always question their motive, but that's easier for me to do versus a 
larger audience of people to do, right? So there's always that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I guess the way I'm thinking about this is back to the sort of interconnectedness of things and the influence we have over a group is sort of the product of the influence we have over the individuals in the group. And that influence isn't always sort of direct and intentional, right? right. So the behavior of a leader in a group has an influence over that group, whether they mean it to or not, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that I agree with. And so I think that they have a greater sort of commensurate responsibility to act in ways that would be beneficial for the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I think when we think about individual responsibility in a group context, it's different for everyone and it's sort of graded both in the sense of what's my responsibility, what's your responsibility is not black and white mm-hmm. and also graded in the sense that everyone in the group has a unique responsibility, not just in terms of like the strength of that responsibility, but also like what they're responsible to or for. Right. But so now let's say, that we're also taking into context other people's narrative of themselves, right? Or other people's where they're coming from story, right? So now we're building something. Is it possible for people to have a shared ideology towards something and yet have different politics? And I'm not saying politics in the sense of like politics, but like different views of the world and yet come together. And I know that that is possible. But then if your sense of individual responsibility is tied to your politics, how do you you maximize the potential that you get out of them? Yeah. Well, I, I think once we figure this out, <laughs> we have an obligation to the world to go to go tell everyone. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have a pithy answer for you on that one. I, I will say that it's impossible to not have different perspectives and different worldviews and different values. And yet we still do come together. Uh, so we're certainly in practice, we're doing it more or less effectively all the time. Right. We are. A lot of it is also when you try to filter for that is when the problem arises, because if we accept individuals as individuals and not a part of a, some sort of a clan or a horde. So for me, a lot of times building something or working with people, it's a personal contract that you're making with each other, right? So you're making a contract and each one of us is getting some benefit out of it. And as long as we're fulfilling that responsibility, how much or how less we're responsible for each other's life still remains like a culture question. But at the same time, the freedom to be who you want to be is extremely important, regardless of where you are in the world or what you're building as an individual. So even in a group, I think groups that figure out how to give that individual freedom, but have that, but reach that collective goal would outperform 100% of the time. I mean, we're getting to fundamental ethical questions at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like fundamental, you know, how do you form just society questions mm-hmm. that are probably outside the purview of this podcast. I think it's important for me to have an understanding of my own position. Right. And what I value mm-hmm. and what I do to try to achieve, you know, to strive towards 
mm-hmm. those values. So that's, you know, praxis for me is taking my sort of theoretical ethical stances, for example, and figuring out what to do in the real world to bring the world more and more close to them. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think that this is also the benefit of theory of, of having an ethical theory because it provides a sort of grounding from which you can, you can operate, you know? Right. right. So I, I get a lot of my ethics from Fisk's socialist ethics, for example. So a lot of my answers to the questions of, you know, how do you bring people together have to do with, you know, how do you solve for completing goals and so on have come from that tradition. Mm-hmm. Other people have, have different answers. And then right. we all have to, you know, work together in the same in the same group. Right. The thing to do that I can say with some certainty is to understand your position. Mm-hmm. Uh, not you specifically, but in general. Understand your ethical position as fully as you can. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> this was great. I really appreciate it. This is a very this is a good conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. 